Good morning. As Ben said earlier, my name is Gino, Gino Hildebrandt, and I'm glad to be here. I want to say a couple things before I get started. First of all, I really love that song. I said this to Jeremy earlier, uh, In in Your Presence. I, I think that's a tremendous song. Uh, I appreciate that. I enjoy worshiping here with you all this morning. And then uh, the second thing I'd like to say as I get started is that I appreciate your pastor, Ben Overby. He's been a good friend to me for several years now, and uh, he's a... Uh, He's a good guy. Now, I guess you know that already. He is, um, he is a whizzy, WYSIWYG kind of person. I don't know if you know that term. WYSIWYG is just the acronym for what you see is what you get. Ben's a, Ben's a straight shooter, and I've always appreciated that about him. Um, he, you know where you stand with Ben, and I appreciate that. Anyway, so this morning, um, I want to help us strengthen our faith in Christ Jesus by dealing with a core issue or at least do my best, and that is trusting Jesus to accept us as we are. Trusting Jesus to accept us as we are. I think it's true that many of us are reluctant, actually, to come to Jesus. Reluctant. Most of us have wrestled with some inability to seek Christ from time to time. there There are good seasons where it seems to be simple and easy to come to Christ Jesus, But then very often it's difficult to come. I think it's true that many of us find prayer to be difficult, certainly season to season. Many of us, I think, find prayer boring. So I think that's pretty much true across the church from time to time. And so we neglect this important and life-giving habit. How, How is it or how do we move past the guilt we feel when we turn toward Christ in our thoughts, because sometimes we, we've done some things or thought some things that are inappropriate. How do we move beyond the burden of past sins or present transgressions? How should we deal with the thought that Jesus may not really enjoy our presence? After all, He is holy and we are not. These, these thoughts are not, uh, these, these are thoughts that I have had from time to time, so I, I when I preach brokenness or sins, I talk about my own or talk from my own experience a lot because I, I don't want it to, my people or you all to feel like I'm above anything or above anyone. But I think these are common thoughts for people that belong to Jesus. He is holy and we are not. And I think many often ask, how can I approach Jesus when I am disappointed in Him not answering my prayer? I'm kind of mad at Him. He hasn't done what I've asked Him to do, kind of like He's absconded. I'm disappointed that he abandoned me in the midst of my greatest crisis. Where were you, Jesus? What's up with that? So then how can I approach him when I'm disappointed in him? So this morning, I want to encourage us in our faith. And I want to say simply and clearly, clearly, (laughs) simply and clearly, come to Jesus. Let us all come to Jesus. He will never reject us. Never. He will never put us off. He will never cast us out. Never. This exhortation that he would never reject us became very, very sweet to me a few weeks ago while on vacation. I read and recommend to you a book written by Presbyterian pastor Dane Ortland entitled Gentle and Lowly. And I have here 
uh, 10 copies of the book right here, and they're yours. Um, and if you, if you uh, take all 10 and there's somebody that didn't get one or if you're on, online or watching by the live stream and you want one, uh, if you'll just tell your pastor, Ben, uh, that, hey, I'd like one of those books that uh, Gino was recommending. Uh, how do I get one? If just tell Pastor Ben, I will bring the books. Ben says, hey, Gino, I need 15 more books. We've got them. We'll, we'll hand them out to you. Um, we, we received several cases for free, so this, it's no skin off my back or, or Hope Chapel. So, Dane Ortland, I recommend the book. I was deeply encouraged by what, I, what, by what I found in the book, and among other things, there was a lengthy meditation on John 6.37, which reads like this, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, the larger context of that saying is Jesus explaining that he is the bread of life. So let me read the context, John 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, to the gathered disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a very familiar text. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Beautiful, beautiful fundamentally important promises. I'm going to zero in on verse 37, but I think it's important to note the context of the verse. Jesus is offering himself not merely as the new Moses, which he does on more than one occasion, not, not just as the new Moses who gave the bread of life to the people of God. Jesus is offering himself as the bread, the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies our hunger for God. He satisfies our need for salvation, for rescue from sin and right relationship with the Holy God. He is the only one who can secure eternal life for the world. Amen? Amen. And he offers himself to us freely. He offers himself freely. If only, if only we would believe his offer, we could be satisfied and no longer afraid no longer confused, no longer estranged from God, we would be at home with Jesus if we would believe what he says. So I'm not here at all to condemn because I believe we all struggle with his offer. We all struggle to believe it. We struggle with his offer to never reject us because we don't really know his heart for us. Haven't thought about it like that maybe. Haven't thought about his heart for us. We don't really believe his wide open embrace of us or his genuine humility and easy accessibility. These are all things I'm going to talk about in just a minute. But this, these are things that are not original in my mind. I, these are things I learned from Pastor Dane Ortland. It's a tremendous book, but I was struck by this, um, uh, this call to Jesus and how wonderful he really is. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about at length is the heart of Jesus. 
Um, Pastor Orland's book takes its title from a text in Matthew 11. We're going to look at that in just a moment. There in Matthew 11, Jesus describes his heart. Describes his heart. In fact, it's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus says something about his inner motivations. He describes his heart, his emotional and motivational core. He describes it in two words, gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly, which is the title of the book. And I think many of us struggle to come to Jesus because we don't understand, perhaps, the nature of his heart. So here's the text, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me. It's an imperative. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It says it's a command. And I will give you rest. It's a familiar text. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Again, the only time in the New Testament Jesus talks about his heart like this. Now, these two words, gentle and lowly, have some um, important ways to understand them. So the word gentle is the Greek word praus. It is used in three different other places, three other places besides here in Matthew 11. Matthew 5, 5, the first beatitude, the meek, selling here at the earth, familiar text, the meek. So it's that, that, that translates that same Greek word. Matthew 21, 5, quoting Zechariah 9, our King Jesus is coming to us humble Mounted on a, on a donkey, same Greek word. So we see it translated meek and humble. And then uh, another text, 1 Peter 3, 4, it's, it's used of wives who display the excellent character quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. So this word, when Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly of heart, this word gentle is used in these three places and it gives us a, as a, gives us a great idea that Jesus is um, kind, he is uh, not harsh, right? Uh, here's a quote from Ortland. He writes this Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The posture most natural to him is not a broken finger, not a, not a pointing finger, but open arms. Meek, humble, gentle. This is how Jesus describes himself, describes his heart. Then he uses a second word, which is different. It overlaps a bit, but it's different. <clears throat> Excuse me. The word lowly, tapinos, Greek. you never need to know how to pronounce a Greek word. But anyway, in case you're looking stuff up. This word is a derogatory term. Please, you hear me say that. A derogatory term. It's a put-down. It means one who is humble in the sense of a person without power or without authority. One who is on the bottom of the social ladder, like a little child or a slave or a prostitute or a prisoner. Someone often despised by others, marginalized by society. That's what the term lowly means. Jesus says, I am humble and lowly. We find this word in James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word that's described, that's translated lowly is there for our word humble. This humility is not considered a virtue, a character quality. But it's humility in the sense of being destitute or thrust down 
by circumstance. Gentle and lowly. This is how Jesus describes his heart toward people. His heart toward people. He does not gravitate our Jesus. Our Jesus does not gravitate toward the impressive and the powerful. He gravitates to the socially unimpressive, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the powerless, the broken and hurting. That's our Jesus. And man, that is good news. It means that Jesus is accessible, eminently accessible. Anyone, everyone, is welcome in his presence. His arms are wide open to us, especially the broken and dispossessed, those who suffer. Now hear this part. To those who suffer, to those of us who suffer, from our poor choices. You know, Jesus, he, he walks away when we make bad decisions, right? No. It's not how he describes himself at all. To those who see their disobedience and despise themselves, Jesus says, you are welcome in my presence. He is accessible and kind, generous, welcome, embracing. Not shying away from us. Not afraid, not angry. He accepts us every time without fail. Without fail. So uh, that's his heart. But I, I think that I need to, to address the, the, the uh, core problem with coming to Jesus. We're afraid. We're afraid he'll reject us. We talk about our fears being dispelled. <clears throat> but let me remind you of the, the main verse I'm preaching from. John 10, 37. All, hear that word, all. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, behind our English word never is an emphatic negation in the the language of the New Testament. In order to emphasize a negative in the Greek language, the word not is used twice. So a double negative in English is a positive, but that's not true in the Greek language. Negative stacked on top of one another means really not not at all. So uh, one scholar has translated this. uh, Literally, it will be, be, I will not not cast you out. That's really bad English. It's good Greek. But another author said, I will most certainly never, ever cast you out. I will most certainly never, ever cast you out. So there's a great emphasis here. I will never, not ever, cast you out. So there's this, Jesus is really trying to um, encourage his disciples, trying to explain to them his heart of, of embrace, of a non-judgmental acceptance. So Jesus, really Jesus is like that? Yes, he said that of himself. So, Again, Jesus is eminently accessible. He will never, ever reject anyone who comes to him. And we go, oh, come on, pastor. There is no way that that can be true. Oh, how about that? So um, the Puritan, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, kind of throwing some good names out here for you. John Bunyan. He once wrote on this text, and Ortland 
pulls that out and puts it in his book. But I wanted to read this for you, and I may have you join me in it in just a second. This is how Bunyan describes the response of Jesus to the fears of the saints that he will reject them. This is Bunyan. But I am a great sinner. The response of Jesus, I will never cast you out. I'm a great sinner. I will never cast you out. But I'm an old sinner. I will never cast you out. I'm a hard-hearted sinner. I will never cast you out. Again, this is, these are the words of Bunyan. But I have served Satan all my days. I will never cast you out. I have sinned against the light. I will never cast you out. I have sinned against mercy. I will never cast you out. But I have no good thing to bring with me. I will never cast you out. I like that so much. Can you join me in that? I'll say the first line and all you have to say is, I will never cast you out. Can you do that with me? Okay. I'll say the line and you just, and, and say it with some emphasis, all right? Just, I will never cast you out. Okay. I'm a great sinner. Beautiful. I'm an old sinner. Some of us could say that resembles me, right? I'm a hard-hearted sinner. Beautiful. I have served Satan all my days. I have sinned against the light. I have sinned against mercy. One more with enthusiasm. I have no good thing to bring with me. Thank you very much. I will never cast you out. That's Jesus' constant, unfailing attitude toward us. Good gracious, let's get a hold of that. I, I want to. We are fearful that Christ hasn't really seen it all. That's us. Taking the full measure of our crookedness. Not just our past transgressions, now confessed and forgiven, and with, we, with which we are more or less comfortable. You know what I'm talking about, the sins that you're willing to tell your small group. <laughs> or maybe even your preacher. I don't know. The ones we've, we've learned to embrace. But we know there's more. We are fearful about the innate crookedness itself that leads us to think improperly, to do improperly, to say things that we're sorry for. Deep down, many of us believe we cannot be redeemed, really. Why would a holy God even allow us into his presence, which becomes a problem when we're talking about coming to Jesus? We are fearful this promise can't be true unless Jesus is wearing blinders or he's deaf. We walk too often in ongoing sins, unconquered weaknesses, unfailing, unfailing ways that we stumble and fall. That's us. And Jesus' response is always and forever, I will never cast you out. Can that possibly be true? Sometimes we say, Jesus, I'm angry with you, frustrated by the faith, mad at the church. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I think, we're, I think our fears may often be based on the fact that we treat Jesus or we think about Jesus as though he were one of us. 
that he has limits to his patience. I know I have limits to mine. His limits to his patience and his grace, and that his mercies do in fact come to an end. But dearly beloved, he is not like us. He is not like us. He is not broken. He is not a sinner. Here is Dane Ortland again. We cannot present a reason. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to us, to, us, to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Therefore, we never ever need to be afraid to go to Jesus and bring our entire selves to come to Jesus as we are. There are two more objections I want to answer to why many of us don't come to Jesus and then we'll close it out. The first one is this. The matter of uh, predestination. Well, coming to Jesus, I mean, that was kind of destined for me, right? So here's the text again, all that the Father gives me. John John, uh, 10, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we can hear uh, the... um, the concept of predestination or the patina of predestination in those first few words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Father gives, they will come. And yet, the next words, and whoever comes, hand to us the concept of free will. They're kind of both there. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. So I'm not here this morning to wade into the deep waters of predestination, which remains largely a mystery to me. And so we have the ideas of predestination and free will, both in this verse, very close together. Your pastor is well able, and he'll teach you later about these things, I'm sure. Okay. These, these things remain a mystery to me. I only know that the idea that God put his affections on me in ages past, that he chose me, brought me into his family, that gives me great peace. It gives me great peace to know that, yes, I chose to say yes to Jesus, but then as I've studied the Bible and been taught the Bible, and I hear about the doctrines of election and predestination, I go, oh, he has loved me from the foundation of the world. That's amazing. And it gives me peace. In my view, that's the point of the doctrine of predestination election, but I'll let Ben uh, worry with all these things. So I do believe the Pauline teaching about sovereign election was intended to give us assurance. I also believe that in the economy of heaven, our choices matter. I do believe in the economy of heaven that our choices matter you may remember that the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, never to be heard from again. Jesus offered him life, and he said, no, I don't think so. His choice mattered. Now, a little, little illustration. I was taught early that the um, con- seemingly contradictory doctrines of predestination and free-, free will could be thought of like this. When we die and go to heaven and we come up to the pearly gates across the arch will be written whosoever will may come whosoever will may come 
Uh, I chose right. Thank you, Jesus. But after we, we walk through the arch and we turn around, we will see elect from the foundation. Oh, I like that. Whosoever will, elect from the foundation. So the mystery is there. It remains. That's all I'm going to say. But I want to just finally say perspective matters. Walking through and looking back. Okay, the second objection to our coming to Jesus is the concept, or not the concept, our experience of suffering. Our experience of suffering. Our suffering confuses us with regard to relationship with Jesus. We conclude often that our sufferings in this life, which can be overwhelming. I was just at uh, the home during my, my vacation of a man whose young son, late 20s, overdosed on drugs and died. And we talked about suffering. And he told me the story of his son and wept while he was telling this to me. Our lives, in our lives, suffering can be overwhelming. And many of us conclude that Jesus has already rejected us, has already cast us out, that we've already been abandoned because we're experiencing horrendous suffering in this life. So what's the point of coming to Jesus when he's already abandoned us? But listen carefully, please. Jesus does not say those with pain-free lives I will never cast out. He doesn't say that. He just says those who come he will never cast out. So the only issue is coming or not. Coming or not or not. And I've done my best to paint a picture of the beauty of Jesus welcoming all those who will come. Coming to Jesus does not mean in the final sense that it's up to us to hold on, to come and grab his hand and hold on to him. It's up to our, our strength, our ability, our emotional wherewithal. It's better to think of coming to Jesus like a two-year-old in the shallow end of the pool holding on to daddy's hand and as they begin to move forward toward the deeper end, it no longer is the case that the child is, that the child is in, in a place of safety because he is holding on to his dad but that his dad has a firm grip on that child's hand. No good parent would ever allow a small child into a dangerous setting unless he or she had a firm grip on that child. You know that to be the case. It's the same with coming to Jesus. It's his grip that matters. It's his embrace that matters. It's his welcome that matters. It's his gentleness that matters. It's his lowliness, sitting with the broken and the marginalized and the dispossessed and the rejected. That's our Jesus, and that's what matters. You say, well, isn't there a catch in here, Pastor? Well, yeah, there's one big catch. One big catch. The only thing Jesus demands is that we come. That we come. 
One more quote from Dane Ortland: Nothing but coming to him is required. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion, and a thousand times thereafter, until we are with him upon death. Would you join me? Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning we are grateful that our Jesus has revealed himself as the one whose arms are open to embrace us as we come broken, um, guilty, um, discouraged, angry even. The Lord, our hearts are lifted up this morning. And so grant to us a greater faith. Grant to us a stronger faith. Faith may be a clearer picture of you, Lord Jesus, and your heart for us. That we might actually come, Lord. That we would come in prayer. That we would come in worship. That we would come in faith to receive what you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.